So Luke chapter 14, we are continuing. We looked at some of this last week. Remember, Jesus was invited to this feast. It was a Sabbath day feast. After they'd gone to the synagogue, the leader of the Pharisees has decided to invite Jesus to his house. And you will recall deliberately, directly in front of Jesus, the, the word is translated more or less, what do you know? There in front of Jesus is this guy with dropsy, with edema. He is a person who is swelled up with excess fluid and will eventually, as it were, drown in his own fluid. And so this person is put right there in front of Jesus and um, we now have a situation where they want to see what Jesus is going to do. You're going to heal this guy? Or since you know that we don't think you should heal him because it's the Sabbath, are you going to yield to the social pressure? Um, what is occurring here is a, another rendition, another itineration of a long-running reality, which is they think they're putting Jesus on trial. They think that what's going on here is that they are in charge. They are the ones who get to set the standards. They are the people who get to determine who is and who isn't righteous before God. And so they think they're sitting in judgment on Jesus. They're, of course, completely wrong about that. What's actually happening is that Jesus is the one in charge, not them. And their view of things is totally upside down, completely backwards. The reality is that Jesus is able to judge them, which is what he's going to do. Jesus is going to take the time to actually point out to them their error. They think that what they're doing is good, right, and proper. You would think that sitting at a, at a banquet, sitting at a feast, uh, sitting here on a Sabbath afternoon, all getting together to eat, you would think that this would be, as it were, a fairly benign, amoral activity. That there really wouldn't be a, a, a lot going on here that anyone could condemn. But the leaven of the Pharisees is such that once you buy into a legalistic approach in your relationship to God, legalism infects everything. And it infects this banquet. It infects their entire culture and society and the manner in which they interact with one another. Remember, these are guys who think they're almost, if not, think they actually are sinless. That's what they think. And so they determine who is the more righteous. These, these are guys who don't think that I'm holier than thou is a problem. It's their ambition. This is their life's goal, to be able to sit amongst even a group of other Pharisees and say, I am more righteous than you. They think that's an asset. They don't, they have no shame in that. They're not apologizing for that. They think that that's how they ought to be. They have this egotistical issue that is just beyond. And it affects everything they do. It infects everything. They do. So Jesus is going to give them a parable. They have invited Jesus to this banquet to condemn him. Jesus has accepted the invitation to the banquet so that he can instruct them. 
Jesus still loves these guys. Jesus is still trying to reason with them. Jesus is at their banquet. He has attended the banquet. And he is going to give them truth in the midst of this banquet, even though their entire agenda is nothing but to condemn him. You called Jesus to condemn him, but he showed up to instruct them. So Jesus is going to give them a, par a parable. Now, a parable is a story in which you set next to one another two truths. You, in, the, in the Olympics, you have the gymnastic competition, and one of the things they have are the parallel bars. Well, these are two bars that are very similar that are sitting next to one another. That's what a parable, same kind of word. It's two truths that you put next to one another. One of them is familiar, and you can understand it, and it's going to bring a parallel to another truth that you might not be either willing or are unable to perceive. So Jesus teaches like this a lot. Every time you see him say things like, well, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he goes on to perceive what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he's got a whole pile of them. Those are parables. Parables, by the way, are not allegories. An allegory is a story in which virtually every element of the story represents something else. Allegories are open to a wide variety of interpretations and can mean any number of things depending on what you think represents what. Parables are fairly straightforward. I mean, they might have a couple of different elements to them. The, the parable of the sower who goes out and sows the seeds, there's four kinds of seeds, but they're all, the seed is all the same thing. It's the gospel. Sorry, there's not actually four kinds of seeds. It's four kinds of soil. And so the seed will have different results in the different soils. But the truth is still a very central, obvious truth. The truth is you better bring forth the right fruit no matter what kind of soil you are. So parables are fairly straightforward events. So Jesus is going to give this parable. It has one big major truth that you shouldn't miss. Uh, note that the guests are invited in case you still aren't convinced, and you should be, but that the whole incident with the guy with the Dima was a setup, just in case you're thinking that maybe that randomly happened, well, only the invited guests. This is a closed meeting. Jesus is there. He is invited. He is invited, and the guy with the dropsy is also invited. They're seated at the table, and they have put this guy in front of Jesus. And of course, you recall last week, Jesus brings up, a, again, a very parallel situation where he says to them, well, which of you, if his son or his ox falls into a well, that is, is drowning in a liquid, which of you will not reach into the well and with whatever effort is required, and if it's an ox, it's going to be a lot of effort, which one of you is not going to exert all the effort necessary to pull your son or your animal out of the well and rescue them from drowning in the fluid? So Jesus is looking at them like, we all know what you would do. You would do that. So is it so wrong that you've brought this person in front of me who is drowning in their own fluid and I rescue them on the Sabbath? Is that, is that wrong? And, and of course it's not wrong. It's so obvious it's not wrong that they have no answer. Jesus points out their hypocrisy. That's what he does. Jesus lays it right out for them, clear as day. They are not only hypocritical, but heartless. 
Look at this poor guy. You've invited him to this banquet. You've put him in front of me, and you don't want me to heal him. You think you've made this into a no-win situation where if I do heal him, you will condemn me for breaking your traditions on the Sabbath. And if I don't heal him, you'll go, what kind of Messiah is this guy? We intimidated him into not doing what we know he likes to do, which is heal people on the Sabbath. So he can't be the Messiah. They think they're putting Jesus into a no-win situation. They're completely wrong. Jesus will walk through the situation without any problem at all. In fact, will point out their hypocrisy, which Jesus always does. In fact, he's not done. He's going to continue to point out their hypocrisy. Oh, he was just getting started with the guy with the dropsy. There, they have other issues that they need to think carefully about. And so this is what Jesus does. It's an important observation to make about Jesus. He never lets their error slide. Why? Well, because these are leaders of the nation of Israel. These are guys who put themselves forward as we are the representatives of the law of Moses. We tell other people how to keep the law. If you're ever going to arrive in the kingdom of God, which by the way, we of course all are going to arrive in the kingdom of God, then you must follow our example and you must do what we say and you must act in a way that we approve of. Okay, they're wrong. They're not leading anybody into the kingdom of heaven. They're leading people straight to the pit. Jesus says of them, you make your followers twice the sons of the devil that you are. And by the way, let me help you see. Jesus is like, let me, let me help you figure this out. Even more clearly than by healing the guy, although that was pretty clear, let me give you a parable that is going to help you see, hopefully, even more clearly, your utter and total and complete hypocrisy. So here we are. We're at this banquet, a seemingly benign activity, and an amoral, as it were. The, what kind of morality is really going to be reflected in attending a banquet? I mean, we're at this banquet. We're going in. We're all sitting down. We're eating. Um, come on, you know? Uh, here we all are. Uh, now, you, what they wanted Jesus to do, just relax. Will you just relax? Just sit down, enjoy the meal. Um, come on, you know, the leader of the Pharisees of this area, the, the, the big guy down at the synagogue that you were just at, has invited you to his house to eat. Can't you just, for a minute, relax and have fellowship? I mean, come on. Uh, actually, no, Jesus doesn't fellowship with these guys because there is no fellowship with these guys because these guys are leading people into an eternal dark place of judgment what they're doing is wrong and how they're acting is wrong and they are not the representatives of God and they are not bringing the message of hope and they're not preaching salvation and they are not leading people closer to God they're leading people further away. So Jesus is going to give them a parable. Help them one more time, hopefully, get a grip on some issues. So he begins, verse 7, speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. 
You know how this goes if you've been to, maybe you've been to symposiums where they serve a meal. Uh, I know my wife and I have gone to them. We've gone to like Parkinson's symposiums. You, know, you go up there in San Antonio. You, they, they tend to hold them at, you know, really nice places and, and you don't have to pay for them at all. And you go in and, you know, there's this huge room with all kinds of tables. And, but up towards the front or up towards the stage, there's several reserved tables, you know, for the important people. Um, that, it's common, right? Uh, we understand that. There, is, uh, there, there are places where if you go to like a conference, I mean, everybody wants to sit near the front, right? I mean, you went there to see what's going on. Um, but this event, this is not a first come, first serve event. Just because you showed up first does not necessarily mean that you get to sit in the seats of honor. There are rules. There are social norms. There, there are expectations of exactly what you should be doing and how you should be doing it. This is a society in which where you sat very much reflected your stature within the society and particularly your relationship to the host. We as Americans, we, I think, for the good, for the most part, have kind of tossed all this out. I, you know, there, there are... There are some situations, and, and we'll look at them in just a minute, but let me read to you the, the rest of the parable so that we can get exactly what's going on here. So, here's Jesus' parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you were invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the parable has to do with the wedding feast. Weddings, even in our society, even in this day, are probably one of the more, if not the most, formal occasions to which you are going to, on any kind of regular basis, find yourself attending. There are rules of etiquette. If you've done weddings or been involved in a wedding, if you've planned weddings, uh, at a wedding, all kinds of protocols and things begin to occur during, at the actual wedding ceremony, there are seats reserved for the family, generally at the front. I mean, it's a wedding. You want to be at the front. There are seats for the most related, you know, the brothers and the sisters, and then the aunts and the uncles, and then maybe the cousins, and depending on how many people come, there will actually be the bride side and the groom side. So the friends of one, the friends of other. And the service doesn't actually start until the mother of the bride is escorted down and is seated in a special place of honor. That's, that's all good. And we understand how that all goes. Uh, for the most part, though, if, if we have a, a potluck supper down there, you know, there's no special table. You just go and sit down. <laughs> and as Americans, we're fine with that. We tend to not uh, you know, we can look at this church and we can look at, you know, the people who are seated towards the front and the people who are seated towards the back. You know, it doesn't really say much of anything. 
We don't really make big statements about that. That's not who we are. So when we read this kind of passage, we might look at what's going on here and we might just kind of think that, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what the big deal is. Okay, but we have to remember that there are cultures in which this really is a big deal. This would be one of those cultures. I remember reading this, uh, this book written by a guy who served in Vietnam as a special forces officer. And he was assigned to a place in country where he would do missions with uh, it was the Koreans who were our allies over there and often fought with us. But the standing order was, don't mess with the Koreans. Don't, just don't. They're doing their thing. We're doing our thing. You stay over here with us. Don't, don't mess with them. You, you don't get them. You don't understand them. And unless we give you specific instructions and directions. And okay, so they were getting ready to pull out on this mission. And this particular guy had not got a seat. Uh, and, and he looks, and here's one of the Korean troop carriers Open thing, you know, 20 guys all, you know, sitting in a U in the back of the thing. And what do you know? The back right seat is open. Jumps up, sits down in it. Okay. He no sooner gets sits down, and, you know, a few seconds later, up jumps in the Korean officer. Looks at him. Doesn't speak a word of English, of course. Uh, gets really mad. But not at him. He gets really mad at the guy that was right. Red in the face, screams, yells, hollers, grabs the guy, stands him up, smacks him across the face, pushes him away, and sits in his seat. That guy looks at the guy who was seated at his right and proceeds to do the exact same thing. And in fact, the guy sits there with kind of horror as it, this unfolds, as every single guy in the place does the exact same thing all the way around to where they finally get to the last guy who's right across from him and throw him off the transport as it drives away. Uh, you know, where you sat on that thing was really important to them. This was cultural for them. It was an honor to sit in the seat he sat in. And you lost face when someone sat in your seat. And so the only thing to do is to take that out on the person under you, which they proceeded. This is their culture. This is how this, this is why the way, leave the Koreans alone. Don't, just their, their view on things is not our view on things. They just have a whole other culture in which they approach things. So when we come to this account, you have to realize the seats of honor, we're kind of like, well, I don't care. You know, the seat of honor really let. That is not this place. That is not this moment. That is, these people counted the seats of honor as so important that this determines your ranking in heaven. Remember the very disciples of Jesus. You remember James and John, what'd they do? Hey, they got their mom to go over and talk to Jesus. <clears throat> Why? So we can get the uh, seats of honor in heaven. I mean, when Jesus comes into his kingdom, can we sit on his right hand and his left? That is the exact issue going on here. This is what's happening. We want the seats of honor so that we can be honored because the more honor we get here, the more honor we'll get there. And by the way, they don't feel guilty about this. They are completely self-righteous in this. this. This is why you went to feasts. This is why you gave feasts. The whole idea was for you to be honored and to everyone to go, oh, look how honored they are. 
So what were the circumstances then in which you might actually find yourself seated in the seat of honor and have the person come up and go, uh, you know, that's really not your seat, that's someone else's seat. Why would you sit in the wrong seat? Well, you would sit in the wrong seat because we'll see here shortly that what they had was this quid pro quo thing. They had this exchange where I would throw a feast and I would invite you all and we would see how, uh, how, you would see how well I treated you. And if I treated you really well and gave you the seat of honor, well, the next time you threw a feast, I mean, it was just kind of expected that since I gave you a seat of honor, I mean, after all, when I show up at your feast, you're going to let me sit in the seat of honor, right? Okay, so that's what's happening here. There were people who thought, well, because I have done, I have, I have really been, I didn't just give one lamb at my feast. We gave two lambs. Of course, the next guy to give the feast has got to give two lambs and a goat. The next guy has got to give, forget lambs and goats, I slaughtered an ox. I mean, you know, each successive step was to get higher and higher as to who could show more honor so that I could get invited to all of the prominent feasts and have a prominent seat at all of them because that would show everyone just how righteous I am. I need a high social score so that everyone will look at me. This is who these people are. They do everything to be seen of men. They make long prayers to be seen of men. They love the long flowing greetings in the marketplace. Oh, and to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogue. And their meetings, the people down front, special seats towards the front. That, not because they actually wanted to hear the sermon or anything. That, let's not get confused here. They sat in the seats of front, uh, front because it meant something. It meant that they were important than the people who sat in the back. And so what about the poor? Who cares about them? And that's their problem. They don't care about the poor. If you give a feast and the person you invite can't invite you back, well, then don't invite them again. So Jesus is going to look at them and he's going to look at what would appear to be this benign event where we're just having a feast and people are just sitting down and he's going, you know what? You guys have such a sin problem. You think you're so righteous. You think that you don't have any sin at all. I'm going to point out to you that in the most benign activities, in activities in which no one would normally think that any kind of sin could occur, I'm going to show you just how sinful you are. You're sinful in the seat you sit in. Ooh. You, know, you can run into people who think they're pretty good, right? You think, like, well, I'm going to get to heaven because I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments. I mean, after all, I'm not a bad person. Okay, multiply that by a thousand, and then you're running into these guys. And Jesus is looking at him and saying, you're so sinful, you can't even pick a seat without sinning. Because that's who they are. And, and that's the truth. They actually can't. Because all they want is the seat of honor. Why? To honor themselves. Don't take the place of honor. Someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by the person who's putting this event on. And he will invite both you and he will invite both you and will come and say, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the last place. Apparently, much like today, the guests of honor had the opportunity to show up late. Because, you know, you're sitting in his seat, and, and he's not just now showing up. 
Here's the problem. You assume that you deserve the place of honor. You don't. Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees understand you don't deserve the place of honor. And by the way, it should be clear, if it's not yet, it should be clear, and it particularly will be clear by the time we're done this passage, Jesus is talking about a whole lot more than a wedding. He's talking about a whole lot more than merely the feast at which he's attending. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And that's because, in these guys' minds, their standing on earth affects their standing in heaven. They think how high they are held in esteem on earth will reflect how high they are held in esteem in heaven. When the kingdom of God comes, and obviously when it arrives, we will simply march into it. We, we don't need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, John the Baptist can preach that, but it obviously doesn't apply to us. We don't need to repent for the kingdom. We are prepared for the Messiah. Why, as soon as he shows up, he is just, he's going to be thankful. He has such people as us to fill his kingdom up. That's what they think. I mean, that's what they really think. Jesus has to give them these kinds of things like, you guys, you're so egotistical. You're so full of yourselves. You're so full of your pride. You can't even pick a seat without sinning. You have to remember, these are guys who, if you were to talk to them, they're impressive. Without a doubt, several of the men at this feast could have quoted to you from memory enormous passages of the Pentateuch. Several of them probably could have just quoted the whole book of Genesis from memory, if not the whole book of Leviticus. Most of us have difficulty reading the book of Leviticus, let alone memorizing it. Not these guys. This is what they did. And they, they had competition. Everything was a competition. Everything for them was a competition, up to and including the seat you sat in, let alone your ability to spit out the law. They see themselves as leaders. They're not. They believe they're showing people the door to the kingdom. They're not. They're shutting it. The way to the kingdom has nothing to do with your works. This is the error. This is it. This is the error they continuously make. We are going to make it to heaven by what good people we are and what great righteous works we've done and how we have so fulfilled the law of Moses. It's not true. All the false religions out there tell you the exact same thing. If you talk to the Mormons, the Mormons believe in three heavens. But if you want to get to the third heaven, the one that really matters, the one in which you arrive as a god in heaven, and you get your own world, and you have your spirit wives, and you get to keep them pregnant forever as you fulfill all of your godhood and the, and the population of your own world, okay, well, you better get down to the temple, the Mormon temple there in Salt Lake, and you better, you better perform a whole pile of ceremonies that they've got in order to earn your place in the coming kingdom. Okay, the Jehovah Witnesses, they initially taught that there were 144,000 of them. And when the, when the 144,000 were finally filled, then Jesus was going to come back. And, you know, the, of course, when it became clear that their numbers greatly exceeded 144,000, they had to amend that. To, well, those who are really dedicated will be the 144,000. The Hindus, they will teach that 
if you do the right works and if you suffer sufficiently in this world, then you will be reincarnated and you will come back a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher until finally you make it to the top cast. Uh, there are five casts and the untouchables all the way to the top cast where you, if you will work hard enough and, and, and assume the various yoga positions which are hard and require enormous discipline and can be often be painful and hold them until you finally achieve the oneness with the universe. Your mind is completely empty. When you're totally brainless, you finally make it. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you just got to work really hard to get there. Then you can become one with the universe. The Buddhists, by the way, hold to a kind of a version of that. They're like Hinduism light, you know, that's, it's kind of like Hinduism. A lot of the elements are the same, except the Buddha taught that you could get that all done in one lifetime, like single person. You don't have to reincarnate 15, 20,000 times. But still, you have to work hard. Everybody says you have to work hard. The Muslims. Okay, Allah is going to grant this glorious heaven to some of them. They're not really sure which ones. It's, all this kind of capricious. You know, if he's having a bad day, then who knows? It may, just, it may just be eternal punishment for everybody who died that day. They're not really sure. The only way the Muslim can be absolutely positive that they are going to enter into the glories of Allah's heaven is if they die in a jihad. If you're engaged in a holy war against the infidels and you lay down your life in the process of killing the infidels, well, then good for you. Off to eternal paradise and bliss it is. All of this is based on works. Works, 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 works. This, you have to do the works. Okay, the Pharisees, they are right in that whole list. They happen to think they're worshiping the God of Moses. They think that they're reflecting the view of the God of Moses. But the fact is, they're not. They're wrong. They're totally and completely wrong. They literally think that by washing their hands and eating the right foods, that they are earning their way to heaven. You'd think that just a moment's reflection on that might lead you to wonder if that's really, is that, is that really going to work? If I wash my hands the right way and make sure I eat the right food, I mean, that's what it takes to get to heaven? But you know what? Never quite seems to cross their mind. What they think is that you just have to wash your hands even more fastidiously. You have to be even more careful about the exact food you eat. And you have to eat them the exact way. And you have to sit in the right seat. And you have to, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. They had literally books, books of things that you had to do. So Jesus comes to them and he says, you know, you guys, let me make this clear to you. Jesus says in verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself, he will be exalted. Jesus is looking at them and trying to tell them, your standing before God is not how high you think of yourself. It is not your high self-esteem. It's not how much you think of yourself. It's how much you recognize what a sinner you are. It's not how high you regard your works. It's how high you understand the works of God. 
This is why the gospel is a narrow door and it's hard to get through it. You actually have to humble yourself. You have to stop thinking that you're good enough and that your works are good enough and that what you do is good enough. You have to actually wake up and go, you know what? I'm nothing but a sinner to the core of my being. That's who I am. I can't even go eat a meal without sinning. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. I mean, I am such a sinner that it doesn't matter what I do. Ah, you know, by the time you actually wake up to that, the gospel is going to have an effect on you. You're actually going to be ready to hear it, and you're going to be really ready to appreciate the amazing grace of God. It's not until you wake up to what a sinner you are that you actually appreciate how gracious God is that he's willing to forgive you. That's not these guys. That's not these guys. They don't appreciate what kind of sinners they are whatsoever, which is why Jesus has to give them the parable. You would think, and I think that they just totally forgot, just like they sit around and say, well, if God sent a prophet among us, we would listen to him. We wouldn't be like our forefathers who killed the prophets. That's what they said. Of course, here's Jesus standing right there in front of him, and they'll proceed to kill him. All they had to do was go back to Proverbs. I don't think they paid any more attention to this verse or thought it had to do with someone else. But the Proverbs is clear. Proverbs 25, 6. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of great men. It is better it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Oh, I think they'd read that verse. It isn't going to have anything to do with them. Oh, but it had everything to do with them. So, you've now got the guy who's in charge of this event, right? He's thinking, well, none of this applies to me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm obviously, uh, I, I'm at the chief seat. It's my beast. So, how could this possibly apply to me? And so, verse 12, he went on, Jesus, to say to the one who invited him, I, I don't want you excluding yourself here, after all, since you're the one that invited me. Let, me. let me explain this to you. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your rich relatives or your neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return. And that will be your repayment. When you give a reception, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind. Then you will be blessed. Since they don't have the means to repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I think we read that verse and we're like, yeah, what? Okay, you have to realize, the guy Jesus is speaking to, he is the leader of the synagogue. Don't you understand who he is he is not a guy who takes instruction from some Galilean upstart. Who is this guy to be giving him advice? Who is this guy to tell him how to get righteous rewards at the day of the resurrection? How dare he sit here in his house at his feast in his, right here next to him and tell him anything? That's who this guy is. We just kind of look at the words of Jesus like, I mean, this is Jesus, you know? I mean, of course, this, yeah. I mean, we look at the words of Jesus and we're like, well, yeah, of course, that's what you want to do. And we try to do this too. We try to take care of the poor. We try to look out for people who are, you know, the, the, the lower in society. We try to do this. 
Of course we try to do this. May not always be successful, but we try. We don't think anything of that. Okay, you have to realize, I mean, Jesus might just as well have reached out and slapped this guy in the face. Every word Jesus just said to this guy is about as offensive as you can possibly get. The very fact that Jesus is instructing this guy is offensive. How dare he? This guy is a leader in the synagogue. He doesn't get instruction. He gives others instruction. Doesn't intimidate Jesus at all. Jesus just looks at him and tells him the truth anyway. It doesn't bother Jesus that this guy is a leader of the Pharisees. It doesn't matter to Jesus that this guy is the head honcho of this, of this synagogue. It doesn't matter to Jesus that this guy is hosting this party and that he's sitting in the highest seat of honor in the place. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The truth is still the truth, and Jesus is going to say it. In fact, he's going to say it in such a way that you can't avoid it. He's not going to be subtle about it. This is not subtle. This is literally in your face. Now, I think Jesus... I, I, I don't think Jesus is angry. I don't think Jesus is, you know, acting in an inappropriate manner in the sense of, you know, he's not yelling and hollering and, you know, pointing his finger at the guy. Jesus just says the truth. Here's the truth. Here's your problem. If you actually want to earn reward in eternity, be humble. Which, by the way, Jesus is well aware this guy is anything but humble. I'm going to give you a list of people that you should invite, which I'm well aware you won't invite any of them. You wouldn't have them. You'd consider them too unclean. You'd consider them, you, you won't get near those people. You won't talk to those people. You don't want those people touching you, let alone have them eat at the same table as you. <gasps> How dare anyone like that eat at your table? I mean, you are literally holier than them. That's who this guy is. Jesus just gives him the truth anyway. This is instructive. It's very instructive. We need to speak truth. We need to talk to the people of our society and we need to help them understand truth. And don't expect them to love you for it. They'll crucify Jesus for this kind of thing. This is exactly why they hate him. This is exactly why they can't stand him. Because he tells them the truth. And they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to know the truth. They think they'd rather rule in hell than be servants in heaven. That's who they are. Jesus loves them. Jesus shares the truth with them. Jesus gives them all the light he can give them, and he gives it to them in a, in a compassionate and kind and clear manner. Um, they need to repent. They're wrong. They need to turn around. They just stop trusting themselves and trust the words of Jesus. It remains to be seen whether they will do that. We know the story. One can only hope that some of the people at this, at this feast actually paid attention to what Jesus said, and we could only hope some of them actually did repent. I guess we'll probably have to get to heaven to actually find that out, but one would hope, right? And so we need to speak. Speak. Speak to your society. Speak to your friends. Tell them the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we look at your example. We are often fearful. We want people to like us. We have friends. We have acquaintances. We have 
neighbors and people in our neighborhood and society. And we want to be a part of it. We don't want to be outcasts. Lord, help us to have the courage to speak truth in a way that they can understand. Realizing that that may very well result in us losing some friends and acquaintances. It very well may. May you give us grace. May, may we have so much grace in our speech, it looks like grace is like salt that's been added to our speech. It's, it's savory. It comes forth with such grace. It's seasoned with it. And yet, may our gracious words be true words. May we genuinely love the lost as you do. Speak to them because if they don't hear the truth, they're going to spend eternity under your wrath. May that move us and motivate us. May we love people like you do so much that we will speak truth to them. In your name we pray. Amen. Um.